podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Hi there, and welcome to the Living Local with Edible San Diego podcast. My name is Katie Stokes, and as publisher of Edible San Diego, I wanted to welcome you to a new and important conversation. San Diego County really is a global crossroads, and when you think about it, it's true all the way down to even our very own bodies. In this podcast, we're going to take this concept of we are what we eat, and we're going to unpack it together. We're going to look at what local is, how it works, why it matters. My goal is to create a conversation which is inclusive, dynamic, and one that enriches our everyday life. So I wanted to welcome you to this new conversation, Living Local with Edible San Diego, and to thank Specialty Produce for producing this podcast. everybody. This is Katie Stokes, publisher of Edible San Diego, and I'm here with Paul Mashka, regenerative farmer and educator. We're going to be talking about local food from a really cool perspective today. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. So I thought we'd start with a little bit of a personal background. Your information online, Paul, talks about you being a naturalist, a farmer, a forager, an educator. You know, there's there's a lot there, but give us just a little bit of a of a bio on Paul. Okay, wow, a little bit of a bio. Um, I grew up here in in uh, the San Diego area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess originally I was really interested in nature. That's kind of my passion is uh, kind of awareness of the environment and what's going on with it. And early on, I realized one of our biggest impacts is how um, we grow our food, and uh, so I kind of took on the role of farmer as a way to be, I guess, more or less an activist to see if I can learn and uh, maybe uh, demonstrate some really good methods that, that now you you're, you hear a lot about regenerative farming. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, turning out to be a really great model that actually tends to bridge a lot of industrial ag and organic farmers together without them being kind of at odds with each other. So that that's kind of what I've been pursuing for... Uh, a good chunk of my life, it it all uh, uh, blends into that. I was an organic landscaper for a number of years. I took a lot of horticulture. I worked for the San Diego Zoological Society for about 20 years in their horticulture department. And my role there was to bring organics to their um, to all their practices. So that's why I was hired wow. to change from the wild at the used to be called the wild animal park. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, then I was at the zoo and we basically changed all their or, or practice to organic that really fit their mission statement. That is so cool. So, I never knew yeah. that side about, about yeah. the zoo. Yeah. And uh, I still do that today. I help people with um, properties or projects and help them convert from you know, conventional chemical use to organic. And it could be uh, fruit tree growing or it could even be large landscapes. And I've worked with the, the city college, uh, uh, the uh, the district mm-hmm. of um, San Diego City Colleges and help them change to a number of uh, organic practices. It was like a 13-month program that I taught there. So that that's part of it. And now I teach 
I farm on my own farm at uh, it's Agua Dulce Farm. Mm-hmm. It's in Chula Vista. It's a, 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 a part-time farm, myself with uh, uh, three partners. And then I teach at Wild Willow School for Regenerative Agriculture down in Imperial Beach. It's a nonprofit farm school that's right here in San Diego. It's a little ways away, but it's a fantastic uh, facility. It's been there for over eight years. And yes. I teach the adult programs. Fantastic. So, yeah, and... Everything else that kind of relates to uh, our natural environment, I've been uh, just a a lifelong student in studying what lives here. Oh, my gosh. There's there's so much to talk about Mm -hmm. here. It's just just really exciting. And and all of these ideas that you've touched on, your experiences, so relate to the mission of Edible San Diego. So, Mm -hmm. Paul, I can't tell you what a great pleasure it is to have you here today. And speaking of all of that, I thought we might start with a concept that might seem really new to some of our listeners, the idea that the soil on the planet is alive and how that works and why it's important. So, Paul, could you help educate us a little bit on that? For sure. That's <clears throat> that's a big part of what I talk about uh, in my schooling and then what I practice and also study because there's so much new stuff coming out constantly. <clears throat> it seems that we were it, – it's kind of been omitted from our education since we're – uh, real little. We were taught that soil is dirty. You know, it's hmm. it's germs, and uh, wash it off of our food, uh, wash it off our hands. Um, there's plenty of like real weird uh, negative connotations about dirt and soil, and hmm. you, know, yep. you could say, you know, if you've soiled your reputation, <laughs> that's right, it's a negative yeah, thing. It yeah. just goes on and on and on. Wow. And there are things that are filthy, things that are grimy, gritty. It's just all kind of leans to this negative. I've you never know, thought slant. about that it's, before, the it, whole language side of things. Boy, it just goes on and on and on. So it, it's almost in our in our language, it's almost taught us to like not not look at soil as something that's that's good. It's more but in, in the reality, it's absolutely life giving. It's even all the nutrition that we get in our in our foods come from the soil. And it's not just from things that the plants are picking up, but it's it's all the microbial life in the soil do their role as uh, nutrient recyclers. They wow. break everything down. They use enzymes to <clears throat> break down mineral that now are absorbed by, um, by plants. So it's all these, these invisible microscopic organisms that we're kind of taught that they're germs, mm-hmm. or it might be fungus and that's some rotting weird thing, mm-hmm. or they're earthworms and other kinds of grubs and stuff like that, which are all part of the, what's called the soil food web which is kind of a newer term for how um, the whole, um, you know, uh, trophic levels of the soil operate. It's not like a linear food chain, which is kind of what we've been taught. It is an entire very complicated web of of things that live in the soil, and it's all driven by photosynthesis. So it's, it's, the, the plants have this magical ability to take the sun, sunlight and gather that energy and uh, photosynthesize, uh, pull in carbon dioxide, which is in our atmosphere, which we need that to be sequestered into plants. That's their job. Mm -hmm. And then um, they produce sugars. And this is one thing that's not very well known. Well, it hasn't been, but now it is. That plants, a lot of their energy that they produce from that whole process of photosynthesis, along with bringing in moisture, is that they just exude um, simple sugars into the into the soil, and oh. it's there for the microbial life in the soil. So they're literally like exuding this 
um, like um, it's a bio, it's called a biological glue, and it comes out of the the feeder roots of the plant. Huh. The microbes are drawn to it. They feed on it. They in turn reproduce, die, turn into um, nutrients that are now slowly absorbed by the plant. So the plant itself actually creates the environment for itself along with everything else around its root zone. Oh my gosh, yeah. that is so amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the picture mm-hmm. in, my, in my mind as you talk. And that, that's kind of part of the, the challenge is that we, we have a hard time seeing it because it's not something that, that our eyes can pick up. We can now with the microscopes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a pretty good kind of other... Now, example that we can kind of compare to it, and most of us have been taught that the the key species in our oceans are the smallest living things, which are the plankton. Mm-hmm. And if the plankton disappears, the whole the whole system collapses. It's the keystone uh, organisms that hold life up, and they're the tiniest things. Yeah. And we know that there's a thing called dead zones, and that's created by pollution from industrial ag that gets out into waterways and um. Uh, creates an algae bloom, then sucks all the oxygen out of the water, and all the plankton breathe oxygen, they die, and then it's this, literally a dead zone that's hard to repair if, if it is. Yeah. So we're, yeah. we're, we're kinda, we kind of know that an ocean is held up by the tiniest things and that supports everything uh, up to the biggest things, even the largest organism on the planet, the big giant whales with their baleen-type uh, filters, mm-hmm. they feed on the tiniest thing. So, right. so it's a really interesting way of looking. And we understand that's, that's how that ecosystem works, and it's held up. But the soil is identical. But it's instead of it being like an entire uh, like liquid mm-hmm. environment, it's a solid environment, or, or it seems to be solid, but really it's porous. Right. And the or- organisms in the soil, which are micro microorganisms and fungus and all these other uh, tiny micro arthropods um, make up this whole web of life in the soil, but we're we're just it's, we just can't see it. It's under the under the soil, mm-hmm. so we do have to literally use our our mind's eye. We have we and, and that's one of the things I I teach people is we have to visualize what's mm-hmm. what's going on in the soil, which we can do. We're sure. humans. We, we we can envision anything. Yeah. Actually, and we're using that tool to kind of understand how the whole soil matrix works and how the different strata works, why it's important to recognize what's there and to support it and not to put things on it that will kill it, like industrial ag, monoculture, right. and things like that. So, so the living soil, which a good term if someone wanted to do a little research, is use that term um, soil food web. Soil food web. Yeah, if they okay. look that up, all of a sudden this whole new world opens up and um, um, all the things that we can do for it to support it are things that are have been done a long time. Um, before there was um, industrial ag and chemical-based ag during the Green Revolution, there was only organic ag. It was traditional right. ag. Right. It's still going on all across the planet because lots of cultures can't afford the newer they call them tools, which really are chemicals and, and GMO seeds and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many cultures can't afford that. Um, so they still go their traditional uh, ways. And much of the planet is still being fed by small-scale or, quote, organic farmers because that's really the only option they have. And um, so it, it is, it's vibrant. 
and it's out there, but we just kind of see what's being marketed to us and what's kind of out there in the media. And um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on that we, we're just not aware of. There, there's so much here to talk about, but I'm reading now about how the way that the indigenous people up and down what's now the state of California had amazing methods of tending plants and animals in mm-hmm. such a way that supported not only biodiversity, which is a good thing if you're relying on on hunting and gathering, but in particular contributed to uh, healthy soils and and um, vibrant water systems, the watersheds that would go through certain areas, and it's it's also connected. So even mm-hmm. indigenous people play a role in this picture of of helping us figure out how we can do a better job of mm-hmm. of protecting the soils that produce. Not only produce the food that we eat, but that are under our feet every every day, and that are so interconnected with the health of our atmosphere and our water systems and all of that. Yeah. And speaking of that, Paul, help us understand a little bit more about how this topic of living soil contributes to our wellness in terms of the food that we eat, like the food that we might buy here at Specialty Produce, or a farmer's market, or a grocery store, or a garden that we might have on our, you know, in our backyard or a, a container um, on our balcony. What difference does it make if the soil is alive or, you know, impoverished, say, to the nutritional value of the food that we're eating? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's really fascinating. Uh, plants, they can, they, they're very, very moldable and adaptable. If, and that's what science figured that out quite a long time ago. They could go ahead and more or less design plants genetically just by hybridization to grow on less nutrients. If they grow on less nutrients and still have a lot of yield, which is just bushels per acre, then um, they'll be able to produce that product a lot cheaper. And there hasn't been a lot of um, uh, stress or um, desire to focus on nutritional content. It's just they're just on this treadmill of having to make a profit, having to pay the bills. So the key is to get more bushels per acre so they can keep up and stay afloat. Um, I know farmers, I'm sure in their their original um, mission statement is they want to grow nutritional food for people or livestock. And, but it's, it's gone the other way. It's more of a, a commodity. It's a product that this factory which is a farm, mm-hmm. is producing. So um, they've, they've been able to either use the, the flexibility of the genetics of plants to go ahead and um, grow them on less nutritious soil. And mm-hmm. if the nutrition is not in the soil, it is absolutely not in the plants. Wow. So it's not in our, um, in our food. Um, the other, there's some interesting uh, trials that people do with growing plants. One of them is they grow these crops and they grow them in, a, in a, a soil that hasn't been overly amended. And they literally um, allow the plants to, generation by generation, to adapt to be able to uh, find the nutrients in that soil. Okay. Instead of you really amending it, this is an ancient practice that still goes on today. And they allow the plant to literally change its genetics to uh, find the nutrients and minerals in that soil. Those plants are called land races. So you'll hear these terms, huh. heirloom plant or land race or, or hybrid or open pollinated. So that one term land race is that um, you can kind of not train, but um, 
let a plant adapt to growing in that soil and barely amending it, and it'll do well. It's been done, it's done all over the world. It's not a very commonly known thing. Um, but one of the things is you grow, one of the tests is you grow, say, tomatoes on that, on that soil. One of the tests to see if that is happening is you harvest some ripe tomatoes. They're definitely ripe. You put them in a basket, not all stacked up, but low at a, a room temperature, and you see how long they'll sit there before they rot. And they'll sit, if, if the nutrition's in there, you won't believe the shelf life. It's mind-blowing. They'll slowly actually almost dry in place, not rot, because their, their cells or their skin are thick. All the antioxidants that protect them are there, and it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Wow. And newer stuff, there's no, there's, and you can see that would be a great benefit. Sure. Early on in prehistory, uh, we didn't have fridges. We maybe we had a root cellar, but it, what would be great is just have it in a basket at room temperature in in our home, protected, and it stayed good for a long, long time. Even tomatoes, which right. or or things with that are fruits with thin skins. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of shows that's one way that people are tracking uh, nutrition without even testing it, you know, to see what's in it. But there there are lots of ways that people do uh, do. Uh, uh, tissue samples, and you can find out the nutrient content of a plant. It's not a common thing, hmm. but it's it, there are tests out there. Some are as simple as using one of those um, those little um, testers that you use to look at the sugar in um, in grapes. Oh, uh, what's mm-hmm. that called? It's that little. Um, I don't know. It's a sugar monitor, uh-huh. and uh, it's it's. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but um, you can put a, a drop of the juice of your plant in there, and um, you can gauge how much nutrients are in, like kale or anything that you have. You can actually figure out how much nutrition's in there, or at least get a general. And it's a very simple, quick test right in the field. You walk out there. Is it? Is it? You can f- figure out within a minute. Is it ready to pick, or should I wait? Wow. Yeah, lots wow. of things. Simple that's, tools. That's so cool. But yeah, the nutrient-dense soil and especially living soil really grow a completely different type of plant from their root systems to their foliage to their fruits. Um, there is a lot of evidence to support that the nutrition's there and the antioxidants are there mm-hmm. and they're more of a, an actual whole food instead of kind of... Uh, kind of an unfinished food, really. It's there. A lot of modern foods are just shells of what they used to be. Wow. Well, yeah. our our previous guest on the podcast, Hannah Bay with the Farm Bureau, was talking about how in San Diego County we have one of the highest number of organic farms, certified organic farms in our county, compared mm-hmm. to elsewhere in the country. And I'm trying to connect the dots here a little bit, thinking about all of us when we're you know when it's time to shop for you know for for groceries for that day or for that week. And and would you say, Paul, that, that it makes a difference for our, our, our own health personally, our, ourselves or our family, if we try to shop for locally grown or, and or organic food um, compared to other kinds of, of food out there? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So often I, um, I'm working with people and um, – I have one project where I put in a large plant family garden for a family. And um, a number of the fruits and vegetables that have been grown, they go, oh, I don't really like those. And it's tomatoes. And it's like, this is the richest thing that you'll ever put in your mouth. Well, why don't you like them? Oh, they don't taste like anything. Oh, you know where that comes from. It's from a lifetime of eating 
uh, store-bought tomatoes that were hard and red and sliced and flavorless and then a weird mealy texture. Yeah, I can totally understand. The things that were in cans and they ate, oh, I totally understand. Um, So there's, there's some... There's some new learning, and it's not just our mind, but it's we have to use the tools that are on our body. And if we resist even tasting it, because our, our mouth will tell us, it really will. And you can't just try a beat one time and go, yeah, I still, I, I the, the term I hear often, I've heard it for years, is um, I'll, I'll offer something to somebody, and, they'll, and then they'll say, I think I don't like it. <laughs> How can you think you don't like it if you've never tried it? So I, I just start kind of giggling, and I said. Yeah, you, that doesn't work. You've you mean they, tr- they say that before they've tried it? Yep. Oh. I'm, I'm trying to hand it to them, and they're like, no, I don't. I think I don't like it. <laughs> don't use your brain. Use your mouth. Okay, use your taste buds and use your your tools. Your senses, right? Yep. We have all we your have senses. All of, all of our senses. So, but yeah, the one of the things that they're, they're finding that people that overeat, they're overeating food that doesn't have nutrition. Hmm. And so you're not satisfied you actually are eating a large quantity of something and it might be you know might be vegetables or might be something but you end up overeating because your body is so attuned to knowing how much nutrition you just took in that it knows you didn't Mm -hmm. so keep eating um that's a fascinating thing that they're they're finding that if your food is nutrient dense your body is triggered to say i'm good and but yeah nutrition is you can smell it, you can taste it, you can feel it. You definitely, flavor, if it has a lot of flavor, most of the time it is nutrition. Mm-hmm. If it has a lot of flavor, unless it's a bitter flavor, then it's some other compound in the plant. But, right. but, but rich flavor, like taking a bite of a raw beet, it tastes like dirt because it's full of minerals. Right. Their roots are 14 feet down and beets. If you have that's good soil. That's amazing, yeah. 14 feet. And oh that's, my gosh. That's their mineral miners and the things in that plant family. Uh, just are full of minerals if the minerals are in the soil. But if they're bland beets out of a can, no. I remember pushing those off my plate when I was a kid, like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah, and if it it ended up on my plate and there's a stain there, I would would have a hissy fit. (laughs) But I understand now. There there wasn't real food. It wasn't. So, yeah, it's, yeah, and it's 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 real common. But I, you know, I think uh, it's certainly part of our mission with with Edible San Diego to encourage people to try the food mm-hmm. that's grown locally, yeah. um, to go to the farmers markets mm-hmm. or uh, wherever I am. I always look for um, any kind of indication that something was grown or caught or made locally, because chances are there's a real life you know person behind it who's working yeah. so hard to to grow that beet or make that pickle or, right. or whatever. And yeah, yeah. But- there's so many, so many uh, levels to why we should try to support our local farmers or whatever kind of business because, first of all, the, the, the produce that's grown locally, you'll get it in, in the proper season mm-hmm. and not uh, that you went to a store and it would, these tomatoes were from Brazil and they're in the middle of winter. Or, well, uh, and if it's been stored and carried across the ocean, it's just a shell of what it was. Also, the 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 ecological footprint that that the they call right. it embodied energy that went into that food to get it from one side of the planet to the other is just mind boggling and they they call them externalities they're mm-hmm. they're costs that are kind of hidden from us and um, so if we want to do the I guess if we're really trying to do the right thing uh, supporting local economies is such a big deal um, and 
at the same time, it, it's an opportunity for people to develop relationships with the people that's, that either grow it or right. catch it or produce it or mm-hmm. cook it. And so much of this is about uh, uh, that type of human connection. Um, and yeah, relationships are, are, are huge in this. And it, it makes it mean yeah. so much more. Yeah, you absolutely. learn. And yeah. um, mm-hmm. I, I'm taking notes as we talk. Mm-hmm. There's so much here to learn about. It's, it's just really uh, exciting. And I, I wanted to tap a little bit of your expertise about uh, a, a kind of a food that a lot of people are passionate about, mushrooms, because mm-hmm. they they might help us kind of wrap a bunch of these topics up together as we finish our, our conversation today. But I know you're a, a mushroom expert and aficionado, and I wonder if you could help us understand a little bit of the backstory to mushrooms and, and why they're so magical. Yeah, they're they're mysterious and magical they're um amazing it's um yeah it's it's a giant topic but at the same time they they all all around us they they're they've they've been around before there was green plants and they've been around before we were here and um they have kind of figured out how to begin to to build soil they they literally drew the the photosynthetic plants <clears throat> out of the water. Really? And they've taught them how to grow roots. My and, mind is boggled. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying, so I'm trying to picture these primeval uh-huh. eras when the earth was... Uh, Dominated with insects and, and fungus. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and there, if you look into it, you'll see that there's some that were massive. They were like huge trees like or i've heard that they're yeah. enormous organisms and yeah. it's not just the little thing that we think of as the cute yeah. little mushroom but yeah. it's part of a larger yeah again uh, a lot of these parts of the whole fungus world are invisible to us and uh, you'll hear this term mycelium mm-hmm. mycelium is actually the body of the fungus and so if we think of mushrooms that's the f- that's the fruiting portion or kind of like a flower and but most of the of that entire organism is is hidden from us it's either in a log or it's in um under the soil or it's uh, connected to roots of plants or it's in the leaf litter under trees a big mat they call it a mycelial mat or it's uh in the in the the leaf litter in your lawn the duff all of that thatch it's it's an entire mat of mycelium breaking that down and dropping it into the soil and it lives there so when mushrooms pop out of your lawn that's a good thing and literally wow. those are beneficial organisms breaking down the thatch releasing it to the soil and then um as it as it builds up they just keep on uh moving through it um the, they have a number they have a kind of like three different roles okay. one is um um they definitely are decomposers and they break down lignin, which is the hard part of wood or or straw, whatever it is that the hard part of any kind of uh, uh, plant that when it's when it dies, they help to break it down. And it's like just think of something breaking down a piece of oak. Okay. It has to have really powerful enzymes, and they predigest it. They there it's stored energy in that in that wood. And they have figured out how to tap into that energy and use it to grow their bodies and reproduce and then it wow. <laughs> it's so cool yeah. and then other things come along and can eat it uh, so it's they actually pre-digest it now it's in a form that is totally edible to other things and then it and it'll go through all these different they're called trophic levels and different different stages of things now can feed on it just like termites can't eat wood without fungus 
Oh. Term, termites have to have to inoculate it with fungus to be able to break it down. Oh. Um, lots of things work that way. So they're so they're 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 called they're nutrient recyclers. Huge role, and we couldn't uh, we couldn't survive without them. So that's one role, and a number of those are fruit producing mushrooms that we eat. Oyster mushrooms, they're a decomposer. All the button mushrooms are decomposers. Um, let's see. There's a number of them that are decomposers, but there's a whole bunch that we eat that are mycorrhizal, they, which means they're hooked to the roots of plants. And they absolutely need each other. They're essential to, to each other's life. They have to have each other. It's, one of, it's a symbiotic relationship that they absolutely have to be together. Um, they can live a short time, the plant can, without them, but sooner or later the roots need to be colonized by one or many different varieties of beneficial fungus that attach the roots. Either they uh, encase the, the root hairs by like a, like a sleeve or they penetrate it and they um, do a nutrient exchange. And the whole idea is mushrooms aren't a plant. They are uh, in their own kingdom. So there's animal kingdom, plant kingdom, other different kingdoms, but the uh, fungus is in its own kingdom. They don't photosynthesize. They, uh, they literally have to feed on something. They need a host, or they need a food source, and they break it down with enzymes. And then they bring in the nutrients into their system. And reproduce, and they are um, the ones that are hooked to roots of plants. That the, you'll hear on occasion, those are it's a mycorrhizal mat of, uh, of fungus that is one organism, and it can be hundreds of acres wide, and it's a single organism hooked to the roots of, say, poplar trees or aspen trees or oh, or pines. So that's so that, amazing. Yeah. So you do hear about the the largest living organisms, and it's one organism, and they are producing mushrooms and they produce spores that now waft off and can start the whole thing over, but they could be thousands and thousands of years old, that one organism, because they kind of keep, I wouldn't say cloning themselves, but they just kind of stay alive as long as they, they have healthy forest to be hooked to. Uh-huh. Um, that's how they stay alive. Kind of a, bal- a dynamic balance there. Mm-hmm. Are there any of those kinds of mushrooms? Are there any kinds that people would recognize as something that we could eat? Yeah, there's lots of them. Truffles. Truff- oh, are, truffles. Truffles are a mycorrhizal fungus. Uh, they're hooked to roots of oak trees and hazelnut trees. And um, people literally plant them um, and they get them pre-inoculated. So somebody knows how to collect the, the either my- healthy mycelium or spores, inoculate a baby tree, grow it on. Now, as that root system grows in a container or even a field, um, it's attached to all of its feeder roots. Then that tree can be moved with that organism on it and moved. And so the people even in the U.S. buy, buy uh, inoculated uh, trees from Europe and um, bring them here. They have to go through quarantine, which is super tricky. You'll hear like, well, we want to kill all the fungus on the tree. Well, you'll want the fungus on the roots, obviously, because they're going to grow truffles. And um, so people are doing it in the U.S. Uh, I haven't heard of a lot of success, but um, it takes a number of years. But that's a really cool crop. And they don't, they're not invasive. We actually do have local truffles that grow here. Huh. And they're about this. They're like the size Tiny. of a pea. Wow. And they have no flavor whatsoever. Yeah. I found them before. They grow on our oak trees. Yeah. Wow. And you said there's a third kind of mushroom? Yeah. Um, the third kind is a parasite. Parasite. So that's, it's a pathogen. So, okay. yes, they do attack another organism and use it as a host. And often um, 
it could be an oak tree. Oak trees are a good example of of lots of different um, associations with fungus in our environment. So, and because uh, we have lots of oak woodland here, and we have lots of parasitic fun- fungus that gets on them. There's one called the honey mushroom, or oak root rot fungus, and it's a delicious mushroom when it grows, but it also is at, in this at the same time attacking the oak tree. Oh yeah. But trees don't just succumb. Plants aren't just this thing that don't put up defenses. There is amazing defenses that plants put up. Um, they say it takes a 500 years for a for an oak tree to mature and 500 years for an oak tree to die. Wow! So that means that it's years. you know it can grow for hundreds of years and fend things off well, and then it's going to put up a fight. So it doesn't just die. Most of the time, it doesn't die quickly. They mm-hmm. die very slowly, and they finally they're they. They senesce and come to the end of their life after a big, you know, battle later on in life. A thousand years, that's pretty incredible. So it's, yeah, so there there are uh, parasitic or pathogenic fungus. Many of those produce um, edible mushrooms too. So there really Mm -hmm. are edible mushrooms of all these three types. Um, So we've learned about that today. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. you know, if people wanted to find out more about the kinds of things that you teach about, should they contact you through Wild Willow Farm? Wild Willow Farm, that would be great. Okay. Yeah. Um, There's uh, a lot of great programs there right definitely now. Definitely some so. really nice uh, adult programs along with all kinds of children's programs of every age, high school. Um, we teach everything from how to, how to make cheese to um, uh, make soap and then all kinds of uh, uh, herbal classes. Uh, weed identification classes, and then weed as in weeds, not yes. not the other weed. Yes, I knew what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> and then growing food of all different kinds, and we uh, teach uh, fruit tree. Uh, it's called holistic f- uh, uh, fruit tree care. So okay. it's uh, uh, managing orchards with a, in a more of a holistic view, which has a lot to do with regenerative farming. Looking at at our farming system as as a system, a systems approach, and and looking at it as a, in a whole, and that's mm-hmm. what in a holistic view, which is makes us think, makes us learn, and all of our everyone's context is different. So you can apply these principles to your context instead of just giving someone a formula or giving someone answers. You basically are working on giving them the tools and the principles to apply to their context, and it could be you could be in any country. So that's a big part of regenerative agriculture or holistic farm management, which has a lot to do with uh, ranging animals and grazing and and things like that. So this... So yeah. it's all it's also connected. Mm-hmm. Gosh, Paul, I really can't thank you enough for, for sure. coming by mm-hmm. today and talking about these mm-hmm. things. We've really only touched the surface, but then again, you know, there are a lot of really memorable ideas you shared with us today. I, I I'm absolutely intrigued. And I want to encourage our listeners to follow up and learn more with some of the classes that they offer at Wild Willow Farm and and to tap your uh, deep knowledge. It's it's really exciting. And kind of on this theme, I wanted to share with everybody a, a quick cooking tip for this issue of the of the podcast on the same idea of, you know, wherever we are in life and however much we know about, about things, it's always fun to try something new. And this little uh, snack that I've figured out how to make over the years is, is, is really fun because it's very hands-on. <laughs> and so I'm sure you guys have all heard about kale. I mean, it's, it's almost... Um, been uh, over overblown in recent years and some people make fun of you know how some people just uh 
you know, rave and rave about how wonderful kale is. But by George, as a kind of an amateur gardener, Paul, I have mm-hmm. found that kale is one of the most forgiving, toughest, longest-lasting plants in my garden. And I really appreciate that. If I get busy and forget to water it or, or you know, whatever, um, it just it just kind of keeps growing. And I wanted to share with you all that there's a super easy way to make a uh, a snack out of kale that lasts for a long time in our cupboard. And it's delicious. It's really fun because either you've grown it yourself or you got the, the kale at a farmer's market. And um, here's here's what you do. You basically get your kale leaves and um, use your, your two hands to kind of um, pull the stem away from the leaves until you, you've got a stack of stems and a stack of leaves. And what I try to do if I have the time is to keep the stems and freeze them so that I can use them later in soup stock or, or bone broth. But um, you can also compost them if, if you like. And once you have your leaves, you just um, get them in a big bowl and um, rinse them off with some water. Maybe I guess Paul would be okay if we left a little bit of the of the garden dirt on them, but you a know, bit. a little bit, just yeah. just a touch. So just kind of you know give them a good slosh there, um, shake out most of the water, and then here here comes another fun part about making kale chips. You can season these with any kind of sav- savory uh, flavors that you like. So. Pick your favorite kinds of salt and herbs and some garlic salt on there is always a really delicious addition. So you put you sprinkle your your seasonings on the leaves, add a little bit of your favorite healthy oil, like I like to use olive oil or avocado oil, coconut oil, or sesame oil. And then the real fun part is you get in there with both hands and just massage those uh, the oil and the seasonings all over all of the leaves until they're evenly coated. And you, either you have a dehydrator or you have already set up some baking sheets um, where you, you layer the kale leaves in a single layer. And if you're using an oven, set it on the lowest possible temperature setting. But then you put the leaves either in the oven or your dehydrator and let them dry for as long as it takes for them to get kind of nicely crunchy. And everyone's oven and everyone's dehydrator is a little bit different. So just keep checking them until they get to the, the kind of consistency that you like. And I think you'll find that, that these um, kale chips will last in a glass jar in your cupboard for, I mean, theoretically for weeks or months, but I know around my house, they never tend to last that long because they're such a delicious and healthy snack. So anyway, everybody, I wanted to share that cooking tip with you today. And once again, to thank Paul Mashka for joining us on the Living Local podcast. And we're hoping you have a great local day out there and we'll talk to you soon.